0: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media Thanks to the generosity of our supporters Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available To help people look to God daily Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au Today 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 with Jeff Fines,
1: We are taking the gospel to the world Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher Bringing people far from God, near to God We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, Compassion. connecting every one person to all that God has promised them.
0: Today, today, today with Jeff Vines. Hello, my name is Bill, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. If you've caught the past few episodes, you'll know we're currently in a series called The Story. It's a look at the major stories of the Bible. Today's message is looking at Gideon's life, found in Judges chapter 6 and 7, and what we can learn from his walk with God through some trying times. You can find this series and more messages wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now. This is Today with Jeff Vines.
1: Turn over in your Bibles, if you would to Judges chapter six and chapter seven. I'm in Judges six and seven. We're gonna be reading through Judges seven, but I'm gonna be uh, summarizing what's happening in Judges six. And I wanna tell you that right now in the story, the narrative takes a little shift. It takes a little change. The last few weeks we've dealt with Moses and him leading the children out of Egypt into the promised land and then Joshua. And we've been concentrating, at least the writers of the Bible have been concentrating on how this narrative really includes the entire nation of Israel and what God is doing with him. But now things change. Things change, and they really start to focus away from Israel as a whole onto one man named Gideon. And here's why this narrative is so important, because it appears as though God wanted us to understand how he's going to work with us in the worst possible scenarios of living. It's like he wanted to express to us, when you get into a situation where the rug is pulled out from under you, where the odds are against you, where the bottom is dropped out, where there's no hope, where the odds are heavily stacked against you, this is the way I'm going to work with you. And so he gives us six principles by which we are to live when we find ourselves in a situation where, again, there's no rhyme or reason to what's going on in our lives. The odds are heavily stacked against us, and we have no idea how it's all going to turn out. And these six principles you see in the life of Gideon, So it's like we take a little pause here and God says, okay, stop for a moment. We've looked at Israel as a whole. Now let's look at you in your particular life. And here's the first principle by which we live. And it's to remember this, that God will use our difficulties to build our faith. God always looks for opportunities to build your faith. Because one of the things God wants to do in the course of your life is to build your faith in his faithfulness. And if he can give you little scenarios, little tests, where when things get tough, you continue to trust him, then you will graduate to a difficult test, a more difficult test, a more difficult test. He wants you in a situation where he can send whatever he wants your way or allow whatever he wants to allow into your life and you still trust in his faithfulness, which means you won't kick and scream and bail out. You'll stay in it until he's able to accomplish his purposes in you and in the world. So if I were to ask you, how many of you really wanna do something fantastic for God? Now, I didn't ask you, so don't raise your hands. But if I were to ask, you. And I want to say, how many of you want to do something fantastic for God? Now, if you raised your hand, that's good. As long as you understand something, if you want to do something fantastic for God, you're going to have to be willing to go into the wilderness. That's where God does his best training. Let me show you the wilderness Gideon is in. Think about what's happening. They've been in the promised land for a while now. They went through the Red Sea and Jericho, and now they've been living in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The problem is the milk and honey have become a distraction, and now God is an inconvenience. And so they turn away from God. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Isn't it interesting? The more blessings God gives us, the more distracted we are. You'd think we'd spend our time praising and worshiping, but how many to you church is an inconvenience? You do so, but you don't really want to come. How many of you, is God become an inconvenience? That's because there's too many things out there to do that he blesses you with. And so that becomes a distraction. So he becomes an inconvenience. The one who supplies you with all your blessings now is an inconvenience. That's what happens to Israel. And so God sends in a nation to discipline the people he loves. In this case, it's the Midianites and the Amalekites. They come in. And so the Israelites are hiding in the caves and the holes in the ground. And they're just hiding as if they were cowards because they're afraid of these Midianite warriors. After all, maybe they should be. There's 135,000 of them, 135,000 well-trained warriors. And here's how they're attempting to defeat Israel. Rather than warfare, they're just waiting to harvest time. And when all the Israelites are ready to harvest their crops, the Midianites come down out of the hills like locusts, the Bible says. They're so numerous. And they come down and they burn all the crops. They're trying to commit genocide by starvation. They're just going to destroy all the crops of Israel and all the animals and all the livestock until finally they have no food to eat and they die off. They starve them out and then they take over completely and fully the land. So Gideon is in a bad way and he's in this wilderness and suddenly one day while he's threshing wheat in the wine press, he's got one eye on the wheat. He's got one eye over the wall waiting for the Midianites to come down. He's trying to save this food to feed his family. An angel of the Lord appears, and the angel says to him, "O valiant warrior." And you remember what Gideon's response was? Basically this, don't call me that. Why do you call me that? I mean, don't call me O valiant warrior. Don't you see what I'm doing here? I'm living like a coward. We're all living like cowards, in holes in the ground, in the mountains, in the cliffs. We're, we're afraid. Don't call me, O valiant warrior." And then the angel says this, or Gideon says this in verse 13. If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonders our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Hear what he says? He's sarcasm. Don't call me a warrior. Where's our? Where are all these miracles our forefathers told us about? Now, at this point, God could have pulled a Jack Nicholson and said, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Because what is the truth? The truth is how? Let's talk about your idolatry. Let's talk about how you've gone away to foreign gods. Let's talk about the reason you're in this situation is because every man in Israel is doing what is right in his own eyes. You've forsaken the law. You have no gratitude. You're just living with a sense of entitlement. But God doesn't do that. That's what's amazing. And here's why. Because God is not interested in the reason why. Seldom is he. Very seldom will you find God telling you why you're in the wilderness. Too many options. God doesn't deal with that. He just says to Gideon, do you want out or not? And Gideon says, yes. But Gideon says, God, how do I know that you're really going to use me as a good example? How do I don't know you're going to use me as a bad example how that you're gonna show other people what happens when we disobey. And God says, okay, all right, what do you want? And Gideon says, here's what I want. And he gives him three situations where God, God, if you'll do this, then I'll believe. Now, usually God does not tolerate this, but he does it with Gideon. Here's why. He needs Gideon to become a giant slayer. He needs Gideon's faith to be built so much in God that he will do exactly what God asked him to do without question. So he's a little patient with Gideon. He says, okay, what do you want? And Gideon lays out a fleece. And he says, no, what I want, God, is when I wake up in the morning, I want there to be dew on the fleece, but dry all around the ground. He wakes up and it's exactly what happened, but it's still not good enough for him. I guess he's thinking, well, God had 50-50 chance of getting that right. So God, tomorrow when I wake up, I want it to be dry on the fleece and dew on all the ground around. And God says, okay, and he does it, but not one time does God reprimand Gideon because God is trying to build his trust in God's trustworthiness. Think about it. How do, you, how do you train somebody to slay a giant? You got to send them in the wilderness. You got to throw them into the fire, test after test after test and see how they respond. Remember what King Saul said to David when David said, I can take out Goliath. King Saul said, what makes you think you can take out Goliath? And David responds. This is in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David said, I know I can take down Goliath. Why? Because when I was in the wilderness, I faced the bear. God gave me the power. I faced the lion. God gave me the power. So this, this heathen Philistine is no problem for God. No, it's no problem for God. God had gotten David to understand the battle does not belong to David. It belongs to God. And God wants to get you to the point that you understand this battle is not yours. It belongs to God. He knows every situation around it. He knows every contingency. And in order to do that, he's got to put you in situations where the rug is pulled out from under you, where you've got nowhere to turn other than to God, where the odds are so heavily stacked against you. The only way you can be victorious is God. When he does that, then you're ready for graduate school. You're ready to go on to the next level where God can use you to do tremendous things God will take advantage of every opportunity I'm telling you in your life to build our faith and every opportunity to demonstrate his faithfulness to his word. That's not all. While you're in the wilderness, God will also, number two, often require you to do things that seem to be unreasonable. This is why God is building your faith. He'll often require you to do things that seem to be unreasonable. Let's think about 135,000 Midianites, 135,000 well-trained warrior Midianites, 32,000 Israelites. They're a bunch of farmers. Now, I'm not good at math, so you've got to be patient with me. Nobody's sent me an email about how I got this wrong, but I think that's about a four to one odd. Four to one odds. So Gideon probably thinks to himself, okay, there's 135,000 well-trained warrior Midianites. We're 32,000. That's four to one odds. But God's going to have a staff meeting with me and give me the secret weapon. And God calls a staff meeting in Judges chapter seven, verse one, in the morning, Early in the morning there is Jerubbabel that is Gideon, and all the men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men to deliver Midian into their hands. Now you, you put yourself in Gideon's place. Hold on, God, is this the new math? <laughs> It's 135,000 to 32,000. Last time I looked, that's a four to one odd. What do you mean I have too many men? God said, you have too many men. He says, I want you to take the men that you have left and I want you to give them a test. Now think about it from Gideon's perspective. You want me to do what? What, what are you doing? God's building his faith. Just trust me. I want you to take the men. I want you to give them two tests. Take them down in the valley. First thing I want you to do is I, I want you to line them up and say, okay, men, how many of you are afraid? <laughs> Now, the reason God did this is because in Deuteronomy 21 through three in verse 20, I won't read that right now, but God gave them clear instructions about how to face the enemy. God said, when I tell you that I'm going to give you the victory, I don't want you to be afraid because the battle belongs to God. And if you're afraid, go home because fear is contagious. One coward breeds another coward. And if you think that I'm not in charge of this war, you're going to be afraid. And if you're afraid, you won't, you won't follow my rules. You'll, you'll try to take control yourself. And I don't want you. I don't want you. I can't use you. Go home. Gideon said, how many of you are afraid? 22,000 raised their hands. He said, pack up your duds and go home. 22,000. You think about this for a moment. 22,000. Now we're down to 10,000 versus 135,000. Now that's 13 to one odds but he's not finished yet. By the way, just, let me just say something quickly. Sometimes I'll talk to my staff, God's staff, but I'm the shepherd here. And I'll say to them, hey, if you don't believe we can have a fully devoted follower of Jesus in every home, if you don't believe that God still does miraculous things in the lives of people, if you don't believe that God can cure addictions, you don't believe that he can bring marriages back together, you don't believe that he can bring people and children who are far away back to him, then pack up your stuff and go home. Don't work at this church. Don't work here for a paycheck. Be here because you believe in something bigger than yourself. If you don't believe that God can do incredible things, that there can actually be a fully devoted follower of Jesus in every home, then pack up your stuff and go home. Fear breeds fear. Cowards breed cowards. God said, go home. Now God's not finished though. He says, okay, you got 10,000 left. I want you to take them down to the spring of Herod. And he said, as you go down to drink, I want you to tell the men to take a drink and I want you to be very careful and watch the way they drink. He said, some men are gonna get down on one knee and they're gonna have their hand on the sword here and they're gonna take their hand and they're gonna lap up water out of the spring and bring it to their mouths. He said, I want you to take note of every man who does that. Then there's gonna be an entire group, a different group of men who are gonna get down like a dog on all fours and they're gonna drink the water, lap it like a dog with their tongue. I want you to pay attention. I want you to number those men too. And God said, Gideon, every man that gets down and laps the water like a dog, tell them to pack up their duds and go home. 7,700 men got down like dogs and drank the water. And Gideon said, send them home. That leaves 300 men. Surely there must be some mistake. 300, he gets 135,000. Again, my math's not that good, but I'm thinking what? 450 to one odds. Now let's look at this for a second. Why did God ask him to do that? Why did he ask him to do that? Why would he say take him down to the spring? Well, the spring was right near the enemy camp, very close, the spring. And and it's a powerful metaphor because here's what God is doing. He is saying to Gideon, Gideon, every man who gets down and laps the water like this, that means they've got one eye on the enemy and one eye on getting their need met. I'm okay with that. But everybody who gets down on all fours and laps like a dog, they're taking their eye completely off the enemy, their hand is off the sword. And they're more interested in getting their own physical need met than they are about the battle. You see, I don't want them if they're not serious about the battle. Tell them to pack up their stuff and go home. I want 300 men who are serious about the battle, but know that the battle belongs to the Lord. With those 300 men, I will rescue Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Now, can I make a quick application? Let me tell you 27 years of ministry, there are a lot of people in the battle, but they're not serious about it. A lot of people in the battle, they're not serious. Jesus said, and we're going to learn that later, that if you're going to come and follow him, you're going to die to yourself. Do you know what that means? That means at any point in your life that God requires anything from you at all, you give it to him. He might even ask you to give up something that's not really morally wrong. It's just that he needs it for the advancement of his kingdom. And when you die to self, that means your kingdom's not the most important thing. His kingdom is. And whatever he asks you to give up, because he's now the general of your life. Remember Joshua? And whose side are you on? What did Jesus say? No, 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 no. Whose side are you on? Am I the general of, the, of your life? You're in service in my army. I'm not in yours. It's not my place to get involved in your agenda. It's your place to get involved in mine. Do you understand that? A lot of people in the battle are not serious about the battle. Because when you're serious, whatever God requires, whatever he requires, whatever he requires you willingly give it up for the sake of the kingdom. (laughs) You know, when Job asked God those questions about why things were happening to him, remember one of God's response was to Job, hey, do I owe any man anything? Do I not own everything that is on the earth? Can I not take anything I want because everything ultimately comes from me? You see, everything under the heavens belongs to God. Whatever you have in your life was a gift from him. It's his, not yours. It's just on loan to you. If he requires it back, it's his sovereign right to do so for the advancement of his kingdom. The question is, have you died to yourself? Man, I could go on and on about that. that's a sermon in and of itself. What do you have? What are you holding on to that God, you know in your heart, asks you to give up, but you won't give it up. And because you won't give it up, God is not able to do ultimately what he wants to do through your life and in your life. Our response seemingly insignificant tests will often be the determining factor of what God will do in our lives. God will send you little tests along your way. Will you give this up, Jeff? Okay, good. Will you give that up? Will you, man, you get to the point where, if you're, since I know that you are willing, Abraham, to sacrifice your own son, I now know that you can be used for greatness. Is that you? Say, Pastor Jeff, you mean if I don't respond appropriately when God sends me a test that I forfeit my opportunity to be used by God, in the words of Chuck Swindoll, no, you just guarantee that you're going to stay in this test the whole life until you get it right. God will often use our difficulties to build our faith. God will often require us to do things that seem to be unreasonable. God will always lead us to do that, which gives him the most glory. God is about his glory and he's not gonna share his glory with anybody. It's not that he needs it to make himself feel better. It's just when you're as good as God is, and you understand how his glory works, you'll understand that God will always lead you to do that which gives him, not you, the most glory. Verse two, he said, Gideon, you have too many men to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You see what God does in the the valleys of the wildernesses of your life? You think about it. He says, you know, if you guys have four to one odds, And you win, you'll come out and say, man, we were outnumbered, but look what we did. If the odds are 13 to one, still, you're going to say our wisdom and our power and our strategy gave us the victory. But man, when the odds are 450 to one, I mean, this is hand-to-hand combat. 450 could just walk up on one and beat him to death, right? When it's 450 to one, the only way to be victorious is God. And that's what God is interested in your life. Put you in situations where you know the only way you can get out is God. That way he gets the glory. You know, when we lost our first child in Africa in the car accident, I've shared that story. And I saw my wife walk up in a, uh, uh, on the weekend service. Uh, and I saw these African, these Shona women in the Shona culture in Zimbabwe who had been taught that if you lose a child, it's because God has cursed you and turned his back from you. And I saw my wife, the pastor's wife, they saw her stand up and say that God loves her now as much as he did before, and that she loves God and everything she has belongs to God and God has not abandoned her. And to see those African women just come to Christ in droves, how powerful that was, more powerful than three years of sermons I've preached. (laughs) Then I realized that it is God's special. It is his forte to take a disadvantage, turn it into advantage and use it for the glory of God. And that's what he wants to do in every situation of our life. You know, I don't know what God causes and what he allows. I'm not that smart. Neither are you. No pastor is. We're never given an answer. We're never given an answer while we're in the wilderness. There's too many possibilities. But we are told that this same God takes that wilderness, builds our faith, requires us to do something. Sometimes it seems to be unreasonable, but will always lead us to do that, which gives him the most glory, not us. Isn't it true that in our abundance, God seldom gets the glory. Come on. That's the problem with America right now. And I'll be careful. I love this country. I, I, I bleed red, white, and blue. But the reason we are drifting from God is because we're fat. We got milk and honey. God has blessed us and they became, they've become distractions. So God is an inconvenience. There are some of you right now that are thinking of all the things you could be doing rather than being here. It's, you know, that's not a judgment call. It's just, it's natural. It's what happens when you have so many distractions. And the best thing God could do for us is to remove the distractions. And sometimes he will. Maybe not in an entire country, but maybe in a person's life that he wants to use. If he's gonna use you, he's gotta remove them. While in abundance, God seldom gets the glory, in deliverance, God gets praised. But the problem is deliverance and oppression are inextricably tied together. You can't have one without the other. And so God allows times of oppression that He might deliver. And as He does, we glorify God. Let me give you two quotes. That have spoken to me. There's totally separate quotes, but I think they're related. John Piper says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I get we glorify God by having an intimate relationship with him. That's how we glorify God. We seek him to know him. But Henry Ward Beecher says, tears are the telescope by which men see far into heaven. Now let's think about those two things together. I don't like the example of saying that we Christians are magnifying glass. I don't like that. Because that, that is to take something small and make it larger. That's not what we do with God. We're more like telescopes. We take something that is large and vast and bring it near so that people can see the glory of God. Henry Ward Beecher says that tears are the telescope. Something happens in us in our pain where God comes near. And when God comes near and intimacy occurs, then God is glorified because we are enjoying his presence. And when we enjoy his presence in the midst of our tears, guess what happens? People around us see the power and the glory of God on us, which tells me that if God's gonna lead us to do that, which gives him the most glory, I'm gonna have some times of wilderness and God is gonna build my faith that i respond in such a way that I become a walking, living, breathing testimony of everybody around me to the glory and the power of Christ. You say, okay, Pastor Jeff, I got that. Sure, the death of your son glorified God, but you're still without a son. Yes, I am. How do you deal with that? Because he who gave life first can give it again. That's why God God can allow us to lose a life. Because he who made that life the first time can make it again. I will see my son. In the words of Jack Hayford, I will hold him in heaven. I've not seen the last. David said, he will not return to me, but I will go to my son. And whatever I've lost here, God will replace to an infinitely greater degree. You and I see life here. God sees it throughout all eternity. What we might lose here is more than made up for in the five billionth year of our existence with God in eternity. That doesn't make it any easier, I know, for us to deal with what we deal with here. I know that. I do understand this though. G.K. Chesterton said that God is like the sun. You can't look directly at him, but without him, you can't see anything else. Without God... Our trials and tribulations and wildernesses of our lives are nothing more than a collocation of unfortunate events with no redeeming factor. But with God, I can't see directly toward him. I don't understand everything about him. But if I allow God to shine his light on everything else, everything else becomes clear. In the end, Job said, my redeemer lives and he will stand on the earth. I don't know everything about your life and my life, but I know that he will have the last say and one day it will become clear. You've been listening to
0: Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: So Gideon, now his faith has been built. So he just does what God asked him to do. He doesn't talk back. God leads him to a certain place where he's right on the edge of the enemy camp and there's a tent. And it's an enemy tent, a Midianite tent. And one of the Midianites, Gideon overhears, dude, I just had an awesome dream. Tell me about it. A big loaf of barley bread came rolling down the hill and knocked over this tent. You can
0: listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.